together. If you were being attentive in Sunday school today and you were attentive to your experience in God's study this week when you hit day four, you'll know that those two lessons kind of went in together discussing one of those polar doctrines, the doctrine of election. And so this morning, my task before me is using John chapter 6, giving us a very clear picture of the doctrine of election as we've studied in Sunday school today, as we have studied together in our experience in God. Day four, you Thursday and Friday folks will be hitting that in the next day or two, so this will just go right along with you. When I say it's a polar issue, it is. The people have been discussing and wrestling with the doctrine of election since the days of Christ. In fact, that doctrine was so sticky in the early church, if you'll turn with me to 2 Peter, you'll see that it brought a challenge to the early church, even to the apostle Peter, who stood face to face with Jesus and his teaching for three years, the quiet teaching of the inner circle and the public teaching of all of those around. Come with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And today we're going to get, if you got some of that little tacky stuff you use when you're uh, counting money or doing paperwork, it'd be great today because we're going to be working through our Bibles. And uh, I hope, I really, really hope that you have more than an electronic Bible with you today because, and, and when you come to church, bring more than an electronic Bible because there's some places you, need to, you just need to color in or make a note or write in, and it's a little harder to do that electronically and go back and find that. So uh, in Second Peter, if you've ever wrestled with the doctrine of election, if you've ever wrestled with what does it mean, what are ramifications, how can I understand it, I want to take you to Peter in his writing, chapter 3, 2 Peter, pick up in verse 14, look there with me, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you and also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. What were these things? Well, one of those issues was the doctrine of election that Peter had mentioned earlier in this passage in chapter 3. And he says about Paul, in which are some things hard to understand. i got to love Peter's honesty here. Here's Peter writing about Paul, probably writing a little bit about Romans, possibly thinking through Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, that really thick, meaty, challenging passage about the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty. And this morning, if you were in Sunday school, you were kind of tossed right into a discussion of predestination right there in the book of Ephesians. I tell you what, you could say a cuss word in a Baptist Sunday school class and get away with more than saying the word predestination. You just could. It's just, it's just the, the way the environment is. And so when we talk about this, I, I just need to ask you to realize we are people of extremes. We just are. And we tend to fall into those polar extremes and running from one pole to the other. And it gives us some great challenge in discussing difficult issues and doing so in love. I can speak to you from two sides, having been in an extreme at one point, in an extreme at another point, and able as God worked through my heart, helping me resolve some things inside 
the scriptures. I speak to you as one who's made all kinds of errors along the way in working through this. And so, we're going to jump in today and use John 6 as a, well, kind of the way that it was used in our experience in God's study this week, except I want to put it into full context, which means we're going to read a lot of scripture today. Now, I want to say one more thing to you about working through the doctrine of election. And that is Deuteronomy 29, 29. I want you to write that down. And I want you to go back to it later because it will be helpful. It will be something that you will be encouraged by at a later time uh, as you work through this. And that passage says, The secret things belong to God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children after us. In other words, there are some things that God is not going to allow you, me, us, to understand this side of heaven. He's just not. He is so vast, and the mysteries are so great, that there are some things we're just going to run up against, and we're going to say, you know what? I hadn't got that figured out. And if we would be honest about the doctrine of election, we would have to say, like Peter, you know, Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. Well, John did too. Jesus said some things that were hard to understand. And so we're affected by the reality that we can't sort all this out on this side. So I want us to be careful. I want us to be loving. I want us to be, as the old folks in the days of the Reformation used the word, charitable. It's a nice word for being loving in working through things that we differ on. And so here's, here's Peter saying, you know, Paul wrote some stuff that's hard to understand. That helps me. But I want you to look at the warning that comes right after it. Look back to your text. What does it say? Which the untaught and unstable distort. If you really want to get into some distortion, just go jump on the internet. Type in election. Type in predestination. And you'll get into wacky land faster than a click, and it's nuts out there. So I want to just share with you something that's really important about talking about the doctrine of election. You can only have a good conversation about the doctrine of election with your Bible open. To attempt to have a discussion about it without your Bible open, with some printout from some computer download that you got or a friend handed you, I want to tell you, it will be fruitless, profitless, and it will create division. And so our goal always is let's crack the Bible open and let's look at what it says. And so there's a second warning I want to give you. Let me finish Peter's. The untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the Scriptures, I want you to look at that last line in verse 16, how dangerous it is to play around with doctrines and extremes. What does it say? To their own what? To their own destruction. Toying with Scripture to prove some point or to drive home some little pet issue is a dangerous thing for your soul. And so I want to encourage you. Come to the Lord's Word with it open. 
Come with your heart ready. Now, here's the second warning. C.S. Lewis wrote a book. It was actually a collection of essays. It was called God in the Dock. Has anybody read that? Okay, if you've read C.S. Lewis, God in the Dock, put your hand way up. All right. This is awesome. Nobody. Okay. You should read it. He has something to say in it that's very important. Now, when we use the word dock, we think of like a spaceship docking or a boat docking or like a dry dock where we put a ship in dry dock. But that's not what the word meant in C.S. Lewis's writing. In C.S. Lewis's writing, the dock was the place that an accused person sat or stood in a European court, an English court. It was where they sat or stood facing the judge, the jury, facing the prosecutor and the defender. It was the place where a person stood when they were on trial. And basically, here's what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, the modern man has a problem with his approach to God. Listen to his words. Think of God sitting in the chair, being tried and accused in a courtroom. And I quote C.S. Lewis, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Modern man is the judge. God is in the dock. Modern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, this is really important. There is no way for us in our modern mindset to come to Scripture without pride. It's woven into us, and what we try to do is judge the Bible, and we try to judge God, rather than coming as the accused and letting God judge us. And so, when we start off on a study of something like the doctrine of election, pride is a very dangerous monster that will come in and will calls us to want to say things to God rather than let God say things to us. So as we step in today, I want us to come in and let God speak to us. John 6 is a beautiful picture. Number one, God illustrates his pursuit of a love relationship. This is a beautiful picture given to us in the book of John, chapter 6. It's a picture that is an illustration. John calls them signs, messianic signs. They were signs based on Old Testament events and prophecies, based on Old Testament teaching and understanding that Jesus would fulfill to pronounce something about himself. And one of those signs was the feeding of these 5,000 plus folks out in this wilderness area that we read about that Steve shared with us. And so when we look at this whole story, it's, a, it's an illustration. John chapter 6, verse 1, through the very last verse in John 6, which you'll find in verse 71, is one thought, and in that one thought, a set of truths that we should digest as God's people. And so it's an illustration It's an illustration, a sign, a picture of God's pursuit 
of a love relationship by doing this, by revealing himself. That's what's happening. Jesus is revealing God to us, revealing himself to us in pursuit of us, in pursuit of a love relationship with us. Now, this is very important because John 6 can't be understood apart from the setting of John 6. Look in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus is about to give a sign that is going to link him to the Passover. It's going to link him to an event of God's love, of God's pursuant love. It's going to link him to an event where God was placing His love on His people to bring them into a relationship with Him. It is going to link Him to the exodus and particularly to the deliverance and provision experienced by Israel in the exodus. And so there's an illustration here that Jesus is, in a sense, the new Moses. And as the new Moses, He's going to bring deliverance But he's not just Moses, he's God. And so he's going to have sort of a mixed metaphor in his message. i got to go to number two to make sense here. If you look in verse 14 of chapter 6, the people knew that it was a messianic sign. It says in verse 14, When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is the true prophet! Yeah, that's come into the world. In other words, they did not miss the fact that it was a messianic sign. So let's go to number two. God initiates a loving relationship through his pursuit. Now, there is a kind of language used here that is specifically belongs to the Exodus. That language is found in verses 33, 38, and 51. Come there. For just a second, we're in John 6. Listen to the language. In John 6, picking up in verse 33, he says, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. Then you go to verse 38. For I have come down from heaven. And then you go to verse 51. I am the living bread that has come down out of heaven. I want to take you somewhere. Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. Go there, Exodus 3, verse 8, to see God initiating a love relationship with His people through deliverance and provision, and the language matches up because Jesus is calling to mind an image that they already would have, and that is the image of God coming down. And so that's found in chapter 3, verse 7 of Exodus. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their suffering. So I have, what? I've come down to deliver them. Here's Jesus assuming a role that is a mixture of the new Moses and God with us. The I am who is with us and the Moses who delivered us. Jesus is showing in an illustration through this bread event that he is bringing about a new exodus and that he's doing that in love, pursuing that in love. 
And so he has taken the loving initiative. So we're back in John 6 now, and let's kind of think through how this is developing. Miracle. Feed the 5,000 plus all the extended family people that are there. Unbelievable. People say, man, that's great. We need to follow this guy. This is a messianic sign. So they follow him all the way to the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee. They get all the way over there. And you would think Jesus is going to say, man, I'm so glad to see y'all. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Because what he's going to do, number three, Jesus, or you can put here, God informs us through our response to his pursuit of a love, love relationship. He's going to inform us of something here. He's about to just lay the heavy on us. He's going to do something that is shocking to me and shocking to them. Verse 26. Here they are, big crowd, thousands, come all the way around the lake, some through boats, get over there, and they say, hey, there you are, Jesus. And Jesus is going to immediately have a conversation with them, and he's going to say, truly, truly. Now, anytime Jesus says truly, truly, it's like beginning a sentence with listen up. In other words, everything Jesus ever said was true, but there are sometimes he says something that the crowd needs to be really in tune with. So Jesus says, truly, truly, listen up. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. The first thing that Jesus is going to inform us, and you can put a subheading under number three. I didn't punch out these points on the outline. I think it would just be too much to... to I didn't want to type it up, honestly. Um, and so... Let's go. The first thing, letter A under this number three, is our condition. The very first thing that Jesus is going to do is he's going to show us our condition. When you got to day four in experiencing God, your, your author, Henry Blackaby, had you go to your Bible and look in Romans chapter three so that you could soak in, absorb how bad our sinful condition really is. That's, that's what he was doing. In fact, the Baptist faith and message puts it this way. Would you pull that up for me, Lynn? This is the Baptist faith and message. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his creator with a freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race through the temptation of Satan. Man transgressed the command of God, fell from his original innocence, and whereby his posterity inherited a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they're capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Now, how sinful are we really? Well, I want to take you to two places. First, I just want you to camp on John chapter 6 and realize that this is how stupid Bart Walker is, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to personalize it. This is how stupid I am. I am so stupid that if Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, God in human flesh, miracle worker, incredible fulfiller of prophecy, if he stepped before me, God in human skin, and he provided a meal so spectacularly messianic and miraculous that it would make me even say, behold, the prophet of God has arrived, that I am so stupid that I would actually follow him to ask him for a sandwich rather than salvation. That's exactly what they did. That's how stupid we are. That they traipsed all the way to the other side of the lake not to be freed from their sins. Not to be right with God. 
but to say, I'll have a foot-long wheat, turkey breast, mayo, light vinegar and oil, salt and pepper, oregano, lettuce, tomato, onions, banana peppers, a lot of those, green peppers, and would you cut it in half for me? And what John 6 says is, says this is how stupid humans are. We have to wrap our minds around it because this is the story of the Redeemer arriving and we want a sandwich. And he calls us out. And he says, you are so lost in your sin that you came over here not because I showed you that I'm the Messiah, but because you want a free lunch. Now, my brothers and sisters, I'm that stupid. And that is not a good place to be. In fact, Romans 3 clarifies how bad it is. Come with me there. And this is the text that was in our Experiencing God study this week. How stupid is Bart? Verse 9, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. And this is the verses that were in that little section on day 4 that he, he brought to us in our study. And, and what does he say? He says, what then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, how many are righteous? How many? None. Okay. How many understand? How many seek for God? How many do good? What's happening here is that what our Baptist faith and message reveals is illustrated in a real-life situation with God the Messiah in Christ himself miraculously showing the people who he is. And they say, hey, hey, this is great. Listen carefully. This is why the prosperity gospel and Joel Osteen sell the big crowds. Because down at our heart, we're not in it for God. We're in it for what he can give us. This is why the prosperity gospel is a foul breath of hell. John 6 says it, woven down in our heart. We don't really want God. We just want the benefits. And so Jesus said, look, I'm standing right here with you, and you want to order a sandwich? And so Romans makes it clear how bad our condition is that we would seek him. Look there, back in John 6, and I'm going to try to do this timely. I'm so sorry. John 6 Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes. And so, he, he just says, you, you, <laughs> you're, you're looking for the wrong reason. But, but let me tell you the next thing, how hard-hearted we are. When God tells us the truth about ourselves, let me show you what we do. Come with me, and I want you to write under, uh, let's see, our condition, we saw it in Romans 3, we seek not the right things, we seek the wrong things, but, but here's what we do also, we grumble. I want you to look, when Jesus starts unpacking this and unfolding the truth to them, when he tells them the truth about themselves, they don't go, man, I stink. They get mad. They get mad, and here's what they do. 
It's in a bunch of places, but we'll go to verse 41, 43, 52, and 61. All right, 41. What does it say? And the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Go just a few verses down to verse 43. Jesus answered, do not grumble among yourselves. And then go to verse 52. The Jews then began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then in verse 61, they're so put out, it says Jesus conscious that even his disciples grumbled at this. This is serious. What's happening is that Jesus is unfolding to us what we're really like, and it does not please us. In fact, we bow up a little. Who are you, Jesus, to tell me what I would do? And so we have Jesus unfolding to us, informing us. But, but listen carefully. It doesn't stop there. Not only are they seeking him for the wrong reason, and God's revealing that, that we're so fallen, we won't seek God, we'll just seek stuff. Not only is it grumbly when we find out what he really wants to say to us, here's the last thing that happens under this setting. <laughs> they bail out. They say, look, if I can't figure this out, I'm out of here. If it doesn't make sense to me, I'm gone. If it's difficult, I'm finished. I don't want a religion that's going to make me have to really think. Jesus lays these hard teachings out, and I want you to look at what happens. Look in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and walked with him no longer. Jesus got up in his disciples' face and said, This is what you are like. And they grumbled. And they said, if that's what you think of me, I'm out of here. If it's going to take more work to figure this out, I'm done. And so they bailed on him. And so our condition is such that we seek the wrong thing, we grumble when we hear the truth, and we bail out if it's going to be a challenge at all. In fact, let's see, slide number two. Um, I want you to see when... When Dr. Quarles wrote a paper concerning the doctrine of election, this was a section out of his paper that's a quote from the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. The New Hampshire Baptist Confession was the mother of the Baptist faith and message. If you read the original preamble to the Baptist faith and message, you'll see that they said, we're going to take the New Hampshire Confession, we're going to modify it a little bit, because Baptists are unique, and, and, but we're going to keep some of the basic things. But here is something about the doctrine of election. I, as I've worked through the doctrine of election, one of the main things that I constantly hear from people and that I've been so unjustly accused of is that I believe God makes people go to hell. In fact, I had somebody come up to me and tell me that, that, that I believe that babies die and go to hell. I was really shocked to understand that I, I thought that. It was the first time I'd ever heard it about me. I certainly didn't believe that. I think that's crazy. But you know how the chatter goes. This is what the New Hampshire Baptist Confession said. This is what I believe. This is what Baptists have believed. Nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth except his own voluntary refusal to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ which refusal will subject him to an aggravated condemnation? People are lost because they want to be. Not because God makes them want to be. Not because God necessitates them to be. 
They're lost because God lays the evidence before them and they say, no, thank you. I don't want that. And they reject. And it's voluntary. And it's a refusal. And so, here is what's happening in John 6. The people are hearing the claims of Jesus and they are voluntarily refusing to submit to it. And they're saying, I'm out of here. If this guy's going to talk crazy like this, I'm checking out. And so they do. And so what Jesus has to explain to them is that they're sinful so bad that an act of God has to take place to bring them to Jesus. That's what election is. That's what divine sovereignty is. It is the belief that it takes an act of God to save a man, to save a woman. And Jesus makes that clear. Look with me. In the verses starting at 37. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So here's God giving people to Jesus. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. Of all the ones that Jesus has given, he'll lose none of them. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Divine sovereignty. Verse 65, and Jesus was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. This is important. We are so lost that we are aggravatedly refusing Christ and under condemnation. And therefore, in that state, God has to work supernaturally on our hearts to bring us to a place where we will do this thing. And this is called the work of the Spirit. We speak of the Spirit this way. We talk about, we pray and say, God, please send your Holy Spirit to do what to somebody? What's the word we use? Convict. Please send your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. We're praying what was revealed to us in the book of John. And that was that the Holy Spirit's going to go out in the world and He's going to convict men of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. So we pray to God for that and we ask for this. And so Jesus makes sure that we understand that work of the Spirit in verse 63. So go there. What does He say? It is the Spirit who gives life. He's reflecting what he told Nicodemus that it was a work of the Spirit that brought about the new birth. It was a miraculous intervention of God through the work of the Spirit and the preaching of God's Word, the Gospel. And so Jesus is going to show us our condition and what we would do unless He intervenes. Jesus is going to show us the necessity of His intervention, what we call divine sovereignty, God working. But, but make sure you don't get this out of balance. Jesus is going to show us human responsibility. He's going to show us what it means. Listen carefully. When we read this from the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, we realize how God has made us 
capable moral agents. Exercising responsibility for the destiny of our souls. How responsible are each one of us for our souls? We're this responsible that God can justly send any person to an eternal lake of fire and leave them there forever based on that person's decisions. How responsible are human beings for their behavior? So responsible that when you read at the end of the book of the Revelation, you hear about God emptying Hades and death and the dead. You read about Him emptying those people alive into a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. How responsible are you for your soul? You are so responsible that God can justly send you to hell based on your decisions. Is that serious? Absolutely it is. And so what happens is is we struggle with how do those two things balance? How do we find a sweet spot between divine sovereignty and human responsibility? told you we're polar people and we tend to go one way or the other the old two seed in the spirit baptists and primitive baptists man they were just kind of like whatever will be will be we don't need to evangelize the people told William Carey William Carey son if, if God chooses to save the heathen he'll do so with no help of yours there is a kind of belief in God's sovereignty that is viciously anti-God anti-scripture anti-gospel And we need to reject it wholeheartedly. But listen carefully, there's another end of the spectrum that denies the sovereignty of God and thinks it all is on us. Well, I'll tell you what, if we were left to our own, there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who understands. There's no one righteous, and there's no one who does good. So if we were totally left to ourselves, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Come on now, what's going to happen? We're going to go to hell! and joyfully pursue it. And so what God does is He says that He has sent Christ and sent His Spirit to do a work in us to enable us in a divine, powerful way to bring us to see this light. So human responsibility is really very important. What was my next slide? Yeah, there it is. This is from the Baptist Faith and Message. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness. It is infinitely wise. It is holy. It is unchangeable. And it excludes boasting and promotes humility. In our Baptist Faith and Message, we knew that God was a God who intervened in a thing called election to convict and to convert sinners to believe the gospel. And so as we run through John chapter 6, and I wish we could just pour over it, but I'm down to 2 minutes and 58 seconds, and I'm going to use that in just a little more. But here's, here's how it shakes out. If you're a Bible marker, you needed to have marked the divine sovereignty passages and the human responsibility passages because they were both on Jesus' lips. 
Did, did you hear that? They weren't on my lips. Where does Jesus place responsibility? Well, let's look. In verse 29 of John 6, this is the work of God that you believe Him whom He has sent. That's your responsibility, to believe the gospel. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Come and believe. You're responsible to do that. 36, I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. You're responsible to do that. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. There it is. Human responsibility. You're responsible to believe. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So, hold that up against the ones that I mentioned before, verse 37, and verse 39, and verse 44, and verse 65, that hold up God's sovereignty. <laughs> Both of those... Guess what? They're both there. And we can't camp just on one or the other. It is a mystery. It is something we cannot fully comprehend. But at the end, there's a conclusion coming here. You see how I did it in the notes. Uh, number four. Number four. Let me get that quickly, and I'm going to come back. God invites us into a loving relationship through His pursuit. All through this is Jesus inviting people to come and eat this bread, to come to Him to come and be filled, to come and be saved, to come and be redeemed. He's inviting them to come to Him as Messiah and believe and be saved. Sins forgiven, eternal life. He's, he's inviting them. And so He's inviting people into this relationship. He didn't just initiate it by showing up here. He is inviting them because He wants them to be saved. But now there's a strange outworking of this at the end that I want you to go to. I'm going to try to kind of tie this in a nice bow and conclude. Look in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew. So basically it went down to 12 all of a sudden. <laughs> this was a bummer day for ministry in Jesus' thing. You got the crowds, we just fed 5,000, they followed you to the other side of the lake. It's on. I mean, it looks good. People are following. And Jesus said, you're all here for the wrong reason. Go home until you figure this out. And so they did. They withdrew. The Jews went, and even his disciples left. So there's down to the twelve, and Jesus turns to the twelve. In verse 67, Jesus turned and said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? He gives them an out also. But Peter answers the confession he had already answered before. He answers and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have, here's the word, believed. Now this is beautiful. Because in a nutshell, we're going to get a summary here of all this working out in the life of 11 of 12 individuals. We're going to hear about that 12th one here in a second. Lord, we've come to believe. Remember earlier that Peter had made the confession in Matthew and he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood, what? 
did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. Making sure that Peter didn't take false credit. Read verse 69 and look at how it relates to all the things said before about human responsibility. What did it say? Jesus said, believe, 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 believe. Come to me, believe. Trust me, believe. And so Peter says, all right, Jesus, that's us. We believe. And Jesus says, that is great. But what does he say? Verse 69, you, excuse me, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them and said, did I myself not choose you? So when Peter lands on responsibility of man and settles there, what does Jesus remind him of? Sovereignty of God. Peter, do you know why you believe? Because I chose you. In other words, nowhere does Jesus let it get out of balance. Everywhere in the Old Testament and everywhere in the New Testament, you can take a razor. You know those widget razors, the kind, the old-style razors, just a single blade that's kind of encasing something. You put in a little widget or a little scraper. You know what I'm talking about, y'all? Okay, if you will take one of those razors and stand it up straight so that the razor is pointing up, you have to set two things on top of that razor. You have to set the sovereignty of God in election and predestination and the responsibility of man to repent and believe the gospel and both of those always, at all times, have to be right there. There is salvation no other way. It is not either or. It is always both and. So that if you go to hell, the only thing you'll be able to say while you're there is, it's my fault. If I go to hell, the only person I can blame is Bart Matthew Walker. But if any one of us lands in heaven, who will we blame? Come on, who will we blame? We read it in our Sunday school lesson this morning. To the praise of the glory of His grace, I will not get to heaven and say, man, I'm so smart. I figured this doctrinal thing out. I got this Messiah thing down. I will land in heaven and I will say, the only reason that I'm here is that God has loved me with an everlasting love. And He has chosen me in a way I can't comprehend it. And I've believed in Him. But I will not praise Bart Walker on that day. I will praise God for my salvation. And I will rejoice. And so... Number five, let's close it with this. God involves us in a loving relationship through his pursuit. When Jesus revealed himself in John 15, 16, I said, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you to go and to bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. So here's three ways we should respond to the truth of divine election. Here they are. It's just really simple. Number one is humility. Jesus said, unless you humble yourself as a little child, you cannot come to me. 
So what we have to do today is humble ourselves. Humbly admit that if Jesus showed up to my front door and miraculously worked, I would be so ignorant that I'd ask him for the wrong thing. There should be humility. Every one of us should praise God for drawing us by his spirit. Praise God for converting us by his spirit. Praise God for keeping us by his spirit. We should praise him. So humility should come out. Second, joy. Why? When Jesus looked at the disciples and, and Peter said, We've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, You do that because I chose you? We should look out on the unsaved masses and say, Do you know what, Jesus? If it was not for the work of your Holy Spirit, I would be walking among the lost people of the earth in darkness and hopelessness. But in love you came to me. You came to me through my family that taught me or through my friends who evangelized me or through my church who raised me to believe the gospel. You came to me in a thousand ways and I want to praise you because had you not come to me, I would be like John 666. That one always reverberates in my mind because of the number 666 and many of his disciples withdrew from him and walked with him no longer. I would just walk away if it were not for the loving, sustaining, gracious work of God's Holy Spirit inside my heart. And so there should be humility, but there should be joy. Oh, God, that you revealed yourself to me. Oh, God, that you saved me. Oh, God, that you keep me. And the third thing is evangelism. This salvation is so good that I just got to tell other people. And God has ordained that that's how he's going to reach other people. I don't understand election, how that works with somebody else. Here's kind of how I view it. In election, thinking about me and somebody else. In the end of the book of John, there's this interaction between two of the disciples, Peter and John. And one of the disciples looks at Jesus and says, what about him? And Jesus said, don't worry about him. You follow me. Sometimes we're trying to worry about how election works in somebody else's life. We don't need to be doing that. We have no idea. We don't know what's going on in somebody else's life. We follow Jesus. We evangelize everybody with the hope that everyone can hear the gospel and come to Christ. We evangelize with that hope. And so part of what flows out of this humility and out of this joy is, you know what? I like being saved. I love being saved. And I think everybody would love being saved. And so you know what I want? I want everybody to be saved. So what am I going to do? I'm going to share with them. I'm going to evangelize them. I'm going to give them the gospel. And I'm going to believe that by God's power, He will save them. Because that's what kind of God He is. He's a saving God. He's a loving God. And so I want you to bow with me as we close. And I want you to avoid, oh, do I want you to avoid the extremes. You could launch out of here with some zeal for God's sovereignty and go around trying to prove it to everybody, or you could fly out of here with such a zeal for man's responsibility that that's what you'd camp on. Oh, just let these things set in your heart and say, you know, God, the secret things belong to you. 
I believe both of the things you said in John 6. I believe that unless you draw a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, unless you convict them by your spirit and convert them by your power, unless you do that, they're just going to wander off in their own sin. Because that's what they want to do. But oh God, I believe that they have to believe. They have to repent. They have to turn to be saved. And so God, I'm going to pray to you that your Holy Spirit would convict them and that they would turn and believe. I'm going to pray in divine sovereignty and I'm going to pray in human responsibility and I'm going to ask you, draw them and I'm going to pray to you, oh God, that they would believe and be saved. And some of you, you're here today and this affects you because you're not saved. You're not. You came to church today, maybe you're new, maybe you've been here a long time, but what's pressed in on you is you've gone through this and you realize that the things you came to Jesus for really weren't Him and salvation. They were something else. Some little freebie, some little side thing. And you never really pursued God for who He is, what He's done for you, and where He wants to take you to be with Him. And so I want to ask you this morning, Settle that. Believe this gospel. Repent of your ways. And place your faith in Him. Knowing that even in this message right now, He's drawing you. Even in this gospel now, He's pulling, wooing, drawing you to Himself. Would you come to Him today? Leave your sin and come to the one who died on the cross was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father right now ministering interceding mediating on behalf of God's children would you come to Him this morning believer will you be humbled and rejoice and share this good news All should hear. And oh God, that they would believe. Would you stand? As God works in your heart, would you come this morning? Would you come? Everyone needs compassion. A love that's never failed.